So here we are, 2022. Uh, we're talking about virtual reality. And, you know, the last major telecom act was 1996. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, my point being here is that it's going to take a while for lawmakers to understand what the metaverse and virtual reality really is. And it's probably going to take a while to develop a consensus on on how much or what regulations to, to impose here. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be a challenge. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it just adds, adds fuel to the whole whole debate that's going on uh, now that uh, there's and there is a tension on both sides of the aisle uh, for the section 230 type of issue and also getting back to your size question you know you have pending uh, antitrust suits now with Google, yeah. Google and Facebook uh, so all this is is uh, swirling around and I think this uh, the uh, virtual reality aspect just, just adds to it. Welcome to Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review, where we highlight legal issues with prominent lawyers and discuss the study and practice of law. I'm your host, Kevin Donovan. We're here today in the city of Austin with University of Texas Law School professor and former AT&T legal counsel, Joe Cosgrove Jr. to discuss the regulation of social media and privacy in the internet age. Professor Cosgrove, you have uh, over 35 years of legislative, regulatory, and legal experience, and you've founded two uh, two practices, the JEC Legislative and Regulatory Consulting LLC and the Joe Cosgrove Law Firm PLLC, and also written several papers on internet law topics like net neutrality and Section 203. So really happy to have you on the show for this topic, uh, and welcome. Well, great to be here. Uh, Thanks for making the trip to Austin, and welcome to the University of Texas. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent to be here. Beautiful campus. And before we get into the topic, I'd also like to introduce our uh, newest hopes for Emphasis Added. I have with me Brock Jones on camera here, and behind the scenes, Matt Chelf. Brock and Matt are both rising 3Ls in the Houston Law Review. Brock uh, will be summering at Latham & Watkins this summer, uh, interested in corporate and finance transactionals. And then Matt will be returning to Hunt Andrews Kurth, and he is interested in real estate law. But since you will be hearing a lot from them, I'm going to give both of them uh, just a moment to introduce themselves, and then we'll we'll get moving to the episode. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really excited to be here to uh, be meeting with Professor Cosgrove down here in Austin. I just want to make a note that uh, we'll be releasing another episode of our own fourth season in about a few weeks, so be on the lookout for Matt and I's first solo production. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. I'm excited to be taking over as a co-host of the podcast with Brock for this upcoming season. We're uh, super stoked about the addition of YouTube this last year and increasing the media availability that we have. So um, to further on that, we're going to be launching an Instagram in sync with this episode. You can find us if you're listening on Instagram at Emphasis Added Pod. Yeah, so super excited for what you guys are going to do. Uh, really happy to have you guys on. Thanks, Kevin. And yeah, it's going to be excellent. But moving back to our, our esteemed guest, uh, Professor Cosgrove, you know, before we get into talking about internet law, I, I, reading about you, I, I saw one thing was really interesting. And so beyond your legal practice and writing on internet law and, and related topics, you also have a, a three-book series, the Bandit to Tech series, right? And so curious, what is the premise to this series? Well, one, thank you for, for noticing. Uh, uh, two, the, uh, the series sprung from uh, when my wife had uh, read an article in the local paper about a dog uh, that was in a shelter, but then went on to be on the Austin Canine Police Unit. And I just thought that uh, was an interesting premise for new beginnings, new starts. And at the time, we uh, owned a small ranch in the Texas Hill Country. And I thought uh, that might be interesting for, for children's lessons on help, uh, helping others and service and loving one another and so on. So uh, that's how that uh, came into being. That's, I love it. I, I do not have kids yet, but so, I, so I've told myself I'm not gonna, I won't consume kid content yet. But as soon as I do, like I'm banded to text. I'm gonna check it out. Well, thanks. I'm really thanks. Looking forward to it. And uh, 
Also, before we get you know really into the weeds here, I'm really curious because you've been in the, the internet telecommunication space for 35 years, and obviously a ton has happened. And so I would love to know, what do you find is the, mo the in most interesting, most shocking development in that time period? Well, I guess it de uh, depends on how you define shocking. And I guess at the outset, to do my lawyer thing here, I say any <laughs> opinions I, I, I give are mine alone. Uh, that's my total disclaimer there. And I'm not here to give any legal advice today. But back to your question. Uh, as far as uh, what's been most shocking in the, in the past 35 years, uh, other than to me how fast it's gone by, uh, is, uh, and maybe I'll go back just a little bit before that with the, the breakup of the Bell system. I mean, you have to start there in 1984 when it took effect. Uh, and that was a pretty seismic shift in the in the telecom industry, uh, with with the the breakup of the Bell system. Uh, the government had tried to do that a couple times before in antitrust actions, uh, but the third time was was the charm. And then about a dozen years later was the Telecom Act of 1996, and that's the last really major piece of legislation in this space. Uh, so those two things together were pretty huge. Uh, Telecom Act did a lot to open the local exchange market to competition and also the long distance markets. Um, but really, maybe more uh, shocking than those actual legal events was just the, the development of mobility, the wireless space, uh, and of course the, the internet, uh, which is flourished and which will be a lot uh, what we talk about today. Yeah. Absolutely. And to kind of kind of shift over to that, you know, we'd love to talk about the internet first in the scope of social media and the regulation of social media. And I, I feel like in the past decade, social media companies have become so much more involved in the content we see from, you know, preventing, you know, say misinformation from a pandemic to an election to, you know, just controlling everything you see from advertisement to, hey, you know, we want you to buy more of this. And so you're going to see more of this content. And I think because of those sorts of things, you see a lot more people are asking for more regulation, even some social media companies. And it seems like the most notable regulation that governs that is 47 USC uh, Section 230. And so we'd love to know, we'd love to start off just kind of a basis. What is Section 230? Well, that is a, a popular question in your, in your right. It's a hot topic. It's a controversial topic. But actually, uh, it ties into the 96 Act that I just mentioned. It was... Uh, a relatively obscure pro provision at the time. Uh, the big focus was, like I said, on opening the local exchange market and so on. But Section uh, 230 was, was added. It was part of this con uh, Communications Decency Act that was folded into the FTA. Uh, but in English, what, what, what Section 230 uh, was designed to do was to uh, remedy a concern that arose out of the Strat Stratton Oakmont case, and if you remember the Wolf of Wall Street yep. movie, well, of course. That, that is the that is the company that was involved in this case, it was Stratton Oakmont, and uh, uh, some users on Prodigy's platform, their bulletin boards at the time were were popular, uh, made some comments uh, about the leaders of Stratton Oakmont, and the court said. Uh, you're you're liable for for uh, what your users post, and uh, this caught the attention of a couple members of Congress. Uh, uh, here was a Republican and a Democrat, Cox and Wyden, working together, uh, and uh, they came up with what I'll shorthand a good Samaritan type of uh, provision, basically to uh, protect. Uh, and in uh, internet service providers that were at a very nascent stage then, right? right? And so that the internet could flourish and grow uh, without worrying about being sued for everything that a user may say on your platform. So that's the rationale behind uh, Section 230. Uh, there's a great book by Professor Kossif, uh on, on the history of Section 230 that I'd commend to you. Uh, the, the words, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole statute, but the, the key, key phrase, the 26 words that people talk about state that no provider or user of an interactive computer 
service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And then it also has some civil liability uh, protections and those taken together are to uh, insulate, if you will, uh, providers from uh, liability as a publisher or speaker for what's posted on their platforms. Right. And I feel like that makes a lot of sense. That, that, that sort of regulation makes a ton of sense when, you know, back in the early stages of the internet, I think most media platforms were, were kind of more like blogs, right? You just post, nobody, nobody's guiding anyone there. If anything, maybe something's chronologically ordered and that's about the only way you would see something in your feed or, or you know, even probably up until a, a decade or so ago. But how has the internet landscape changed since Section 230 was, was initially introduced? Well, dramatically, just just like I've dramatically grown old, older since '96, <laughs> uh, the the internet uh, is really it, it leapfrogged all expect, expectations. Uh, you know, the internet is, is is found in every aspect of our life, like you're indicating: shopping, banking, entertainment, travel. Uh, you know, home management things and 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 ring cameras and yeah and and. Just you know everything you know, DoorDash having your food delivered now. All all, all these transactions in our our life are, are centered around being connected to the internet, and it's really remarkable to see how how it has grown. I mean, you know, Facebook and and uh, Google and uh, Twitter and all the, those big huge platforms are are really relatively new companies, you know, and, and, you know, starting around 2007 or whatnot. And, and now Facebook, uh, you know, has like 3 billion active users. I mean, it's its own, as some would call it, a digital nation state almost. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. What was, there was a, do you, what was the stat in his article that how much like of the market tech companies? Oh, did? yeah, I believe it was like Alphabet, Facebook. Twitter, I guess Meta now and Twitter and Alphabet were like twenty percent of the entire. Oh, right. I was I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think maybe twenty five percent, but yeah, it's. Uh, it, it's and I guess it's, Al- it's remarkable. Al- Even Apple is like on a ten day trading, you know, streak on increases right now. Mm-hmm. They have the highest market cap they've ever had. Yes, and get us a little off topic, but since the Oscars just happened this past weekend, uh, you know the uh, the best picture was an Apple. Think about it. Uh, own oh, yeah. product coda yeah coda yeah. and uh i guess it was a sundance film uh that apple bought for its entertainment conglomerate it's apple tv and uh so there you go so there's a social media or you know and i saw a phone manufactured computer but now content and they won the academy award so it's interesting it's the first yeah. ever in history correct for a streaming service uh, I think so. I'm not yeah. an Academy Award expert. <laughs> I, I read an article on it. it was, yeah, I yeah, think it was okay. something about Then I'll yeah. trust you. You <laughs> yeah. seem like a reliable source. There, yeah, I, I, my, my knowledge of the Oscars is something else that happened at the Oscars. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Professor Galsgrove, like you were saying, you know, these, these companies like Facebook and Twitter are playing such a key pivotal role in our lives these days. Um, and we've also seen some trends of these companies, uh, you know, taking a much bigger role in regulating the content their users see, such as you know, former President Donald Trump's entire, you know, user profile being removed from Twitter, as well as Facebook, you know, allowing outcries of violence against Russia, against its policies in the Ukraine conflict. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, while many may view like the, those specific actions in those contexts as justified, is there anything illegal about social media companies acting in such a way, regulating user content in such a way? Well, uh, I guess to be professor-like and we'll use uh, terms here. So illegal, you know, I, when I hear the word illegal, it's like it's forbidden by law. And if it's unlawful, then it's not authorized by law. So that might be a little bit of a distinction. But really, arguably, no to your uh, question, because Section 230 was was designed to, to give these platforms flexibility uh, in managing the, the content that was on on the platforms, but you're absolutely right uh, with uh, President Trump's uh, deplatforming on Twitter and Facebook and many host of other issues. It's really called into the question uh, how appropriate that is, and then you know subsequently 
uh, he filed some class action suits uh, against those platforms, and he's arguing that Section 230 is unconstitutional on its face, uh, and that actually a lot of actions they take are in response to government pressure, so it's really not private action. Uh, so, we'll, you know, we'll see where all that goes, but the, the, the punchline here is that's really what Section 230 was, was, was about to, to give these platforms that, that flexibility and, and not be treated as a publisher or, or speaker. So I guess that's my uh, short answer there. And outside of the context of litigation and constitutional arguments of the legality or you know enforcement of Section 230, um, have there been any other actives, perhaps legislatively, to you know address these kind of well, new developments? Yeah, there's been a, a flurry of activity. Uh, there's been a number of congressional hearings. Uh, you know, it seemed like every other week for a while, the, the CEO of a social platform uh, was testifying. Uh, it's been a topic of discussion uh, at also the state level, and, and we can visit about that. Um, and there have been a variety of, of suggestions whether, whether uh, to just repeal it in its entirety uh, during the presidential campaign. Uh, President Biden, then candidate Biden, suggested that to the New York Times, for example, in an editorial board review. Uh, there's been suggestions on greater transparency and in, 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 uh, their uh, moderation or uh, content procedures, more appeal uh, uh, process, or identifying certain uh, lang language that uh, should be able to be prohibited. And so there's been just a variety of, of uh, suggestions, including in, in imposing like a duty of care or treating these platforms uh, like a common carrier. And, uh, you know, traditionally, of course, it, uh, information service providers are not treated as common carriers. Telecommunications companies, uh, like what we think of the AT&T or Verizon, are common carriers. Uh, and we just think of them as transporting the, the data uh, without getting into what the content is. I mean, if AT&T monitored your phone calls and edited your phone calls, you, you know, people would freak, you know, right? So, yeah. <laughs> to, use a legal, to use a legal term. Uh, and, and so, but that's what's bubbling up with the platforms on how, how they've grown so, so strong and powerful is, is whether uh, maybe they should be treated more like a common carrier to have some sort of non-discrimination obligation to carry content. But, um, so I'll, I'll stop there. Are they a hybrid, uh, as some have suggested, they're really kind of both a, a, a platform and a, a, a carrier conduit. So, Right. Well, isn't part of the reason that Section 230 grants immunity to these Internet media companies because, you know, it's not their words, it's somebody else's words. And so, you know, we don't want to hold them liable. But, you know, I wonder, like, where does a company cross that threshold between being just a place like a, a platform to post something on, I mean, what level of maybe content moderation and control kind of pushes them over that threshold where now they're actually, you know, maybe would be considered the publisher of that information? Great question, uh, as all the questions have been so far. Uh, yeah, tra traditionally, again, we, we, we come from the world of telcos just carry the information or complete, complete the voice call. Uh, and the 230 immunity, and I'll use, I'll use that term immunity because courts do, but when I read you the 26 words, you know, you didn't hear the word immunity. Right, yeah. It's, it's not in there. Uh, so the, your question is, when can a platform go too far and, and become a, an, an information content provider? Right. And there's been a couple uh, cases um, that uh, I guess I'd fit here to, to mention. One is from uh, the, the Ninth Circuit. It was a 2008 case, uh, uh, Fair Housing Council versus Roommates. And there it was a, a, a platform or website that when you wanted to uh, 
find a roommate, you, you uh, completed a questionnaire and the website designed the questionnaire and it had questions about you know, sexual preferences and so on uh, that somebody could fill out. Uh, I'm not getting into the fair housing um, yeah. issue. Uh-huh. Uh, and actually it ended up at the end of the case, they said it didn't apply in the context of where they were talking about because it was apartments. But anyway, <laughs> I thought that was kind of a waste of case. But back, <laughs> yeah. back, back to 230, that the uh, majority at least said that 230 did not provide immunity to this website because they were at least in part responsible for the development of the content. And really all they did there was come up with some some questions for the questionnaire. So, you know, is that enough? Well, that, the majority thought in that case uh, they did. The dissent said, boy, you're going to chill speech with that kind of standard. Yeah. Uh, so that was the caveat there. Then there's another case, uh, the, the lead click media case. Uh, it was an FTC case and um, had to do with weight loss uh, products and uh, probably a notorious area for deceptive advertising. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, the uh, lead click, uh, they couldn't take advantage of the Section 230, according to the court, because they were too intertwined uh, with arranging for these kind of fake news stories and, okay. and so on. So they had crossed the line yeah. uh, of not really relying on third parties as much uh, for for the information. So, long story short, I think it's going to be it would be a question of fact. I don't know. If there's a bright line there, uh, but of of where going over and kind of co-authoring or, or whatnot. Obviously, that would be an an easy case of Twitter started rewriting people's tweets, you right. know, yeah. or editing Done. or whatnot. Uh-huh. Yeah, that that might be a bridge too far. Uh, but I think it, the short answer would be probably a question of fact if they're an information content provider. Sure, sure, yeah. So yet to be seen that, you know, just controlling everything you see on your feed, not going to cut it just yet, right? Yeah. But so curious, though, because, I mean, even the way things are, right, everyone, people are calling for regulation. And, and within your article uh, on Section 230, you even quote Mark Zuckerberg in his testimony before Congress and, and a quote you had when he advocates for platforms to be required to demonstrate that they have systems in place for identifying unlawful content and removing it. And I guess when I read that, I I wondered, you know, why might a company like Facebook promote altering Section 230 to a more culpable standard? And I think you were talking about like a duty of care standard or something like that, rather than what the courts had called full immunity. Good question. Uh, I think, well, I think several things. One, I think if you have a bad PR problem, uh, you want to be proactive, okay? And I think right now, I think uh, large uh, social media platforms, uh, digital providers do have PR issues, uh, which will get to privacy and other issues besides the content, for example. Right, yeah. Uh, and, you know, of course, the devil's in the details on on, on how how much culpability a standard uh, Zuckerberg and, and, and uh, Facebook would, would or Meta would, would, would be willing to, to, to live by. Uh, but really, it also kind of reminds me of, of the early days of telecom and broadcasting when incumbents would, you know, they would complain about regulation, but uh, really could think that they could navigate it better than new entrants and they knew the game and so coming out on front you know helps steering it uh and if you think you're going to have something uh, that's going to regulate you or impact your business you, you know you might as well be proactive too and try to kind of help steer or or guide the result uh and i think again as incumbents they generally think that they can do a better job than new entrants well, I wonder too about these incumbents, you know, does this, would this sort of more culpable standard, would it really impact them all that much? I mean, the way they operate and, you know, they already have like a lot of algorithms and techs in place. I mean, would this really even be that burdensome? Again, we'd have to see the details, uh-huh. but uh, right. I mean, for an entity like Facebook, uh, you would think they're pretty far along in their moderation practices. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they have an appeal process that, you know, uh, Facebook already has an independent re- review board for their decisions, like the Trump decision that actually got reviewed by a, a Facebook okay. independent uh, review board. Uh, so they do have a lot of processes in place. Uh, but also, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, new requirements should uh, necessarily be burdensome just for the sake of being burdensome either. So, you know, the, go- the goal, I think, should be, you know, the process should be something that users and the public feels is, is pretty fair. But does does it like would a more culpable standard, I mean, because you're talking about you know, even in the telecom days, right? Like the bigger companies would, would rather kind of steer the ship and everything. And I wonder now in the internet age with Facebook, who just, I mean, has, has a massive control on the market. If they're steering things, is that going to stifle or reduce the chance that these other companies that Section 230 was out there to help them grow, right? Is that going to, you know, basically hurt the ability for competition in the internet space, in the social media space. Well, again, going back to the origin story of Section 230, it was yeah. to to promote the development of the internet and internet providers. And, and the rationale was if we give them this, and I'll use the term shorthand immunity, uh, that'll help doing so. If we change that now, I mean, anytime you increase regulations that, you know, that or change the liability, that's gonna affect the business equation of whether a new entrant's gonna enter the market or not. So uh, again, it's hard to answer these questions uh, in specifics without seeing what the specific requirements are, but as a a general matter, uh, you know, the more burdens you put on entry uh, to a market, uh, the more it's gonna dissuade uh, a new entrant. Okay. And is it possible that alternatively, these companies are suggesting a standard less to uh, create a barrier for new entrants, but more to kind of, you know, say there's a standard in place, get rid of the bad PR problem in a sense. Say there's a standard in the place, we're meeting it, um, and that's okay. Because I noticed, at least in, in some of your uh, articles on section, some of your writing on Section 230 that, you know, Zuckerberg in, in frequently talks about how, you know, like the standard needs to be adjusted for the size of the companies and, you know, kind of under the insinuation that these super large companies. Yeah, no, he, he, he did in his comment. And he, I thought that it, that part was pretty sophisticated and he recognized he, he was representing a large, you know, entity and that the rules may need to be more lax for new entrants. And so if, if Congress was really going to go down that path, that would be something to, to, for them to keep in mind. So I thought that was uh, pretty, uh, realistic uh, concession, if you want to call it that, or observation by, by him. And so kind of switching, um, you know, kind of switching topics in a sense. Uh, over the past 20 years, you know, as we've kind of talked about, you know, kind of with the entire past 20 years, I've really seen the entire Internet age come to, you know, modern society and kind of envelop every aspect of our lives. And with that, you know, we've we've kind of gotten to a point where all of the information that we personally have can be accessed by a single device, usually our telephones. Um, and, you know, the collection utilization of not only user data that is stored on those phones, but also user data generated by using phones and using the apps on those phones is highly monetized by, you know, big tech companies and these social media companies. And uh, I guess that also just kind of just raises the general question of, of what rights do people have to the data, not only that, you know, they have on their phone, but also that they create through their activities on these platforms, on these, you know, websites. Well, uh, you know, one off the cuff reaction is that right on on social media platforms, basically, and you've heard this before, we are the customer, you are the customer, you, you know, and that's why you can access something quote unquote for free uh, because your your uh, your ticket is your inform your, your information. Uh, so, you know, as far as what rights individuals have uh, in, the, in the U.S., you would think, oh, that should be an easy question to answer. But really, it, it's not because our, our privacy approach to date has, has not been to have one national law of privacy rights. And of course, privacy is not spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, so we have kind of a, a scattershot uh, approach to privacy. I mean, we have uh, CP&I rules in the Telecom Act. We got the Patriot Act. You got healthcare. You got finance. You got uh, student privacy rights and uh, all kinds of privacy rights that are here, there, and everywhere. 
and and then they're enforced by a variety of players as well, including self-regulation sometimes by the industry, but federal, state, attorney generals, the FTC, the FCC. So, you know, it's it's really hard to summarize what people's rights are because you have to go to those different laws. I think it's safe to say, and it was expressed years ago in a, in a, in a hearing, that most Americans, I think, uh, probably favor a presumption of privacy when they're online, that they, they, they would favor that, and they want to be able to control the pieces of information about them. Uh, if you ask, that's what they would like to do. Um, you know, you contrast the U.S. approach to Europe and uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, GTDPR, always hard to say, that took effect in 2018. And there it's more expressed about, you know, customers or users have, have a right to know what the company's information is that they have on them. They have a right to object to it, to uh, even uh, and take their data from one platform to another, kind of like number portability, but it's their data portability. And they even have a right to uh, be forgotten is what it's called, uh, shorthand or right to erasure. And they've actually had that for for a while. So, so wait, you have the ability to like your, your data is like your own currency and you're like, oh, you know what? I don't want to put it on Facebook anymore. Like I'm going to take it to LinkedIn. Right. Wow. Right. Nice. Right. A lot of data out there. So. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, now, that, 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 that said, uh, so California uh, has been very aggressive in the area of, of privacy and really started to mirror and take some of those uh, ideas from Europe is what, what I talked about. So they've had a series of laws. I mean, they started as early as 2003, uh, but then 2018 is when they had their California uh, Consumer Privacy Act passed, uh, and it's going to become fully operational here in January of 23. Uh, but it has different different rights that it sets out for them, like the, the right to know your personal information. And, and again, it's pretty similar to the European law. Uh, and what's being collected on you, and 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 you have a right to opt out this of the sale of your personal information. Uh, you, you I'm, I'm kind of curious when it, when a state does a law like that, does it like is it only impact the residents of that state, or if I'm in California using Instagram at that time? I mean, do you any idea? It's a little off topic, but I well, no, no, it's not, and I don't pretend to be an expert on 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 that. But that's the that that is the point. Okay. Of some would argue we need a national privacy law yeah. because one, it is the internet, and it's so it's interstate at least, if mm -hmm. not global. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. it's the World Wide Web, and that it gets confusing for customers and users and businesses. It, for you sure, know, this yeah. patchwork of every state starts having privacy laws, and they don't exactly square up, uh -huh. and, and, and so on. Uh, but basically, it's focused on California residents, okay, right, yeah. and and businesses that are doing business in in California okay. are impacted. Since this isn't legal advice, if you're worried about privacy, change your change your Facebook profile to California. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then this is why we're on California because uh -huh. it's, it's yep. topical and current. Mm -hmm. That just a couple of weeks ago, the the California Attorney General issued an opinion to uh, expand a little bit on what the rights are in, in California in terms of privacy. And this had to do with what's called inferences. So, you know, the companies collect data about you and they put the, all that data together. And what really is the impact of the data is when they make inferences and they go, oh, this person is going to buy a home or this person's in the market to buy a car. Well, they can't find new cars anymore. But anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, or you see what I'm saying, or is a likely voter, you know, from the political sphere. Right. And so the question was asked uh, by uh, an assemblyman in California to the AG, uh, do consumers or users have a right to that inference you know what? What are what is Facebook's inferences about me? Yeah, or Twitter's or whatever, and not surprisingly, but 
he, he came back with the opinion that yes, that is information that the consumer is entitled to know with the caveat that if the platform can establish uh, a intellectual property trade secret type of argument, they may not have to reveal that. So that's, that's going to be kind of the interesting, I think maybe next step is, will somebody challenge it, try to get the information and then see if the platform says, no, it's trade secret, and then we'll see what happens next. But I just kind wanted of, to mention that. Would that kind of be on the basis of like the algorithm or whatever they use to kind of draw the conclusion from the data would be like a trade Well, that or? could be. Uh, again, I don't have the behind the curtain Wizard of Oz kind of insights on all their mediation. I think it's probably algorithms. and But I think there's probably a lot of human analysis as well. But I could, I could be wrong there. So in the context of, you know, states outside of California, you know, where you might sign a user agreement to join an app like Facebook and you actually sign away a substantial amount of your rights. Um, do those companies' terms of use actually specify that you are signing away those rights and how they might use that data? Well, you'd have to look at each of their terms and conditions they post, but uh, by now the sophisticated websites, yeah, they are very specific. Uh, not, not a lot of people, as you intimate, read, read them. them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so that that is an interesting issue. I, I will say, uh, because... I've kind of had the sentiment that you're raising, like, because I know from my personal experience, uh, I'm a lawyer and I sign up for stuff and I admit, although I'm not under oath here, that, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't read all the terms and conditions and maybe shame on me. But, you know, is that really a new new issue? I mean, people buy cars, people bought houses, people have done all kinds of stuff. And it's really up to the person in commerce, if you're in the, the marketplace, whether you want to, you know, read the terms and in, in conditions or not, um, not to anticipate where you're going, but then you can say, well, is there really even, uh, you know, unequal bargaining power and that kind of thing? And so that that's something right. that can be uh, looked at, uh, and you know, and are the terms and conditions uh, clear? Is it misleading? Uh, is there a clear assent that I agree? And that, you know, uh, it seems like a simple thing, but I mean, does it, does it really say by this you agree, click here, so it's clear, or is it kind of vague? Mm -hmm. And, but really courts, to, and I've not done a super deep dive on this, but uh, have, have held these click uh, wrap, I'll call them uh, agreements as being lawful. And, and then again, in one sense, I mean, we're, we're in the internet age, and so what else would we do? How else would we do it? Uh, so, you know, the terms should be more straightforward, and I think there's a lot of emphasis by policymakers and courts to make terms straightforward, easy to understand, but they can't necessarily make people read them. But if they do click on, I agree, well, you agree. And kind of like you said earlier, I guess it's in the concept of commerce, you know, it's kind of buyer beware with a lot of these situations, buying houses, credit card agreements. But something you said earlier, it's kind of like, you know, the social media company, you know, the, the, they're almost taking your data, you know, you're almost giving them, you know, a product that they're using. Mm -hmm, so does mm -hmm. that kind of throw a wrench in the kind of bargaining power equation? Well, it might be if, if, if people are not aware of what the bargain is, you know, uh, yeah, when I buy a car, it's good illustration concrete. I'm buying the car. I see the car here and this I might not understand. Uh, but then again, is the public more aware of that now in, uh, than they used to be? Uh, and, and, you know, frankly, a lot of people just don't care, right? You know, yeah. uh, they just don't. I mean, they want to use the service. They want to be on Facebook. And they want to tweet out the latest pictures of the or soccer game or, or whatever. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it would be a question of, 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 of fact in, in terms of bargaining power and informed consent. And so you'd have to look at the actual terms of the uh, that they uh, outline in their terms and conditions. Well, you know, I, I wonder, like, yeah, sure, a lot of people don't care now because like, Whatever I do on Facebook or Instagram, like it's not so extensive, but I feel like AI is just getting 
so much more complex. Its ability to collect data on us is so much crazier. And I mean, now you hear about the metaverse, which is this place, you know, this universe where I would imagine they could gather data on everything you're doing, right? How you move through this space, what you, you know, not what you're thinking, but it's almost like it what feels you're looking like at maybe. Yeah, what yeah. you're looking at, you know, it's just it feels so much more intrusive or like like AI and data collection is going to become so much more intrusive. And so I wonder, you know, what are what are some ways that like legislators might legis legislators might address this further or increased ability to collect in the future? Well, I think you are right that, that with the metaverse and virtual reality, that's got to be based on something that's going to be based on, on a lot of it's going to be based on information. Uh, and again, uh, I think people's value, how, how they value their privacy in relation to the virtual reality product is, is going to come into play in terms of uh, if there's a lot of complaints uh, that, you know, that attracts attention of lawmakers, they, they, they may focus on it. Uh, it's a very complex area that, I mean, that lawmakers are going to have to become informed on before they can start passing laws. They have to understand it. Uh, so, you know, uh, and as we've seen with, with, the, with the, the law, uh, in this space or, or many laws, technology outpaces the law uh, quite a bit generally. And so here we are, 2022, uh, we're talking about virtual reality. And, you know, the last major telecom act was 1996. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, my point being here is that it's going to take a while for lawmakers to understand what the metaverse and virtual reality really is. And it's probably going to take a while to develop a consensus on on how much or what regulations to to impose here. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 going to be a challenge. I mean, I, I don't I, I think it just adds adds fuel to the whole whole debate that's going on uh, now that uh, there's and there is a tension on both sides of the aisle uh, for the section 230 type of issue and also getting back to your size question you know you have pending uh, antitrust suits now with google, yeah. google and facebook uh, so all this is is uh, swirling around and i think this uh, the uh, virtual reality aspect just just adds to it. Well, one thing I feel like you know, maybe the government will get ahead on is is cybersecurity when it has to do with all this data, right? And so, I was a, I was a former military intelligence officer in the army, and so you know, like one of the things that you talk about in intelligence is, is open source intelligence or intelligence that isn't classified, and you can find it anywhere on the web, web or anywhere in a community, right? And so you have like the Trump administration, for for instance, was incredibly concerned about TikTok, a company that was going to be, you know, controlled by, uh, a, or not, but potentially controlled, probably controlled by a foreign government, or at least have a foreign government with influence over that company. And you have what you know, maybe like eighty million users or something like that. And to think, you know, in the in the case of like some sort of homeland security, some sort of invasion. I mean, heck, I could see the next TikTok trend being like, you know, video the tank driving in front of your house. And then you you're seeing that in Ukraine. right? Yeah, now. you see it in it's, right. It's, it's covering TikTok feeds around the world is it's videos and photos of a war. And, and with geolocation data, I mean, you could map out troop movements. You could map out all of these things. And I mean, even now it seems and I talk about the government getting ahead of it because the Biden administration released a, a statement on our nation's cybersecurity that urged for increased cybersecurity defense in the private sector. And so, you know, I wonder how might we see consumer data protection change in the coming years uh, in the name of like national security? Yet another factor, uh, you know, we I don't know that we've been negative about social media today, but the, the positive yeah. ha has been just what you're seeing with Ukraine. I mean, that that's 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 the hallmark of the power of, of, of the Web uh, and spreading information. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we've seen with, uh, uh, Elon Musk and, and Starlink, Starlink, yeah. uh, and how that's helped in U Ukraine. And I know we'll maybe come back to it. 
but and then we've seen all the hacking things and concerns, and then President uh, Biden's uh, what I'll call more just kind of a heads up when I you know looked at the press re- release. It's like you know use multi-factor authentication and mm-hmm. make sure your security tools are up to date and. Uh, you know, get your data experts and run some drills and so on. I mean, all all good stuff. Um, but as, as far as what laws may may come out of this cybersecurity area, which I'm uh, not an expert in, uh-huh. big disclaimer, uh, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Dean Chesney here is a national expert on cybersecurity issues and uh, and, uh, UT Law School has a great cybersecurity, well-recognized LLM program. So I wanted to to, to mention that. But as far as what, you know, might be some uh, regulations in this area, I guess I would answer it in a kind of a general way with all proposed regulations. Uh, you know, is a cost-benefit analysis, and you know what what is the need? Uh, can the market a- address this? Uh, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward type of cost-benefit analysis that Professor Speeda and uh, Benjamin uh, articulate. But you know, what are, what are the justifications for the regulation? Uh, you know, what does the government need to know to be able to administer it? You know, we get back to that, do they understand what they're doing kind of thing? Uh, what are the, some of the market implications of regulations in, in this space? And, and then how do we know it's working? You know, when you, when you come up with a new regulation, one of the things that should be thought through is how can we check to make sure our regulation is working? Right. So those are a lot of general responses. Uh, to to the the cybersecurity issue, but those I think are considerations that are still pretty pretty valid. I did want to go back in I is it permissible? Uh, yeah. you, you had mentioned uh, the TikTok thing, right? Yeah, and yeah. and you know that that was before TikTok mm-hmm. uh, was Huawei, and uh, and I just think that's interesting to to mention. Uh, with the Trump administration and CTE and Huawei and CTE uh, were uh, said to have, again, uh, affiliations with the Chinese military. Okay. And speaking of that, thank you for your service. Uh, not in the Chinese military, but in our military. <laughs> uh, just, just for the record. Uh, but um, that they, and they were big in, in the manufacturing of 5G uh, gear. Okay. And, I mean, and, and leading manufacturers and so on, but there's this security concern that they were stealing trade secrets when they were in the U.S., et cetera. So uh, Trump put in a ban, and then that even led to an act in 2019, the Secure and Trusted Communications Network Act of 2019, okay. where uh, equipment that they had installed was was to uh, be taken out oh, wow. and uh, so pretty dramatic uh, steps yeah. so things like that has been a cybersecurity related i guess uh, uh, event to where something uh, actually i mean it became re- referred to as rip and replace that right. the, the requirements were that universal service uh, monies and funds should not be spent on this type of equipment from these providers. And if it's in existence, they'll help small telcos take that equipment out. And there's a couple billion dollar fund to do so. So, I mean, uh, that's one example in the telecom space where actually laws was passed and uh, and pretty drastic action was taken, at least with regards to those providers. Yeah, that is really quite substantial. I mean, that sounds like something you hear about like Russia doing when they're banning Instagram and Facebook, but that was over here. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder more and more, you know, what kind of rights do these companies have? Because, I mean, yeah, I think maybe our country's fortunate that some of these really, really big social media companies come from the U.S. And so we don't have as many security concerns. But as, you know, other companies are going to continue to gain more and more ability to gain data, think about like a Euro- even a European, I mean, I know we're allies with the Europeans, but like a European metaverse or, uh, you know, a, a Middle Eastern uh, met- metaverse or something like that, that now U.S. subscribers are giving tons of data through. 
I mean, do, do these foreign companies, do they have any sorts of, of rights really? Or is it just when, when in the name of national security, is it kind of just, hey, it is what it well, is? Uh, no, I think uh, they, they and they did try to con contest it, you know, that on the basis of, you know, an unreasonable regulation or arbitrary and capricious or taking a property. I mean, those, yeah. kind of, you know, those, you know, if they're in the United States, I guess they can make those arguments. I mean, kind of the flip side of your question, too, is mm -hmm. uh, like we we've seen a lot of uh, hacking of, of firms, United States firms. And, you know, so, you know, the question might be, well, what action can they take against those those foreign nations? And that's hard because typically foreign nations have uh, different kinds of immunities. But there there is a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, that um, if a foreign nation is actually uh, doing some sort of business in the United States or uh, some sort of commercial activity uh, or if they're a state sponsor of terror and actually, you know, uh, do something pretty drastic, it's usually in the context of property damage or actual physical injury that there's this this exception uh, to uh, for companies to try to argue, but when they have uh, cyber hack, hacking type of incidents, they, they may try to rely on this particular act. But it's 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 tough sledding yeah. to sue a foreign nation and vice versa. Interesting. Definitely, definitely. So like we were just talking about it a moment ago with, you know, kind of the expansion of these new technologies of satellite internet and these satellite internet providers like SpaceX um, and Amazon satellite internet company. It appears that there's a trend of, of internet access possibly becoming, you know, accessible by every single human on the planet in our lifetime. And, and kind of with that trend, is there going to be some heightened level of regulation necessary to regulate these companies providing that service to make sure they don't trample this right, this internet access to all individuals? Well, the, the development of uh, satellite broadband is exciting from the perspective of connectivity for for more people, uh, and as you intimate, uh, then the question is, well, what's the regulatory governance over satellite as they go around the world? Uh, you know, the United Nations has had uh, some uh, telecommunications-related, uh, I guess, subunits or agencies. The ITU, for example, has been around for a long time. There might be have to be developed some some treaties. Uh, but you know that that in of itself, besides the technology, again, this question is really no different than many other questions. The technology is getting out ahead. They're shooting up the string of Starlink satellites, and that's happening. And so then the question is, you know, uh, how to control it or who who, who regulates it. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, that that's the question, and again, there might be others that specialize in, in that area that that have a better, more specific answer than I than I do. Uh, but I suspect it's a matter of the law uh, catching up with the technology, and then what makes it doubly or triply or many times harder is that it it involves so many nations and different different entities. Is it possible that this kind of brings up the net neutrality argument with these companies, you know, charging services? to for all these people in different levels of service? Is there that concern at all? Well, I, I hadn't thought of, of, of the broadband satellite providers and net neutrality uh, together. Uh, you know, net neutrality is generally, uh, at least in its original form, uh, was the, the telcos, the wireline providers, the, the cable companies viewed as the gatekeepers and that they were going to shut off access to certain content or slow it down or whatnot. Uh, I guess that same issue could come up if we started seeing broadband providers doing that kind of content, uh, uh, slowing down or, 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 or blocking, uh, but I haven't really heard that to be uh, an issue with satellite broadband at this point. Well, uh, it's, been, it's been incredibly interesting talking to you. I have two closing questions. The first one is, where can people...
go to find more uh, from you, from uh, Professor Joe Cosgrove, Jr.? Well, uh, I am on LinkedIn, okay. and uh, a couple articles you mentioned, you can just go to uh, the UT Law website and okay. get access to uh, the papers. I have a paper on Section 230 and one on net neutrality that we just Awesome. Uh, and we'll, put, we'll put links to those in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I... Another would be harder access. I've done an article on small cells that got published in a textbook in Brazil, but that's too hard to get to. <laughs> so I'll just I'll just go with those those two. And I'm also on Twitter. Okay. Good deal. Perfect. Perfect. And I guess as our final closing question, you know, we've talked about how internet will soon, you know, perhaps become accessible to people in, you know, remote locations like New Hampshire, you know, for instance, <laughs> all over the world, right? Um, and so, you know, I wonder, this question's come up before in, you know, in another context, and I'm just kind of curious very, very broadly, I mean, do you think that access to the internet will ever become a fundamental human right in, in our lifetimes or, or perhaps ever? Interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, before I answer that question, you know, do people have a fundamental human right to food, to shelter, to health care, to peace? Uh, so, you know, and obviously the Internet has has a role in in all of those areas I just mentioned. Uh, in telecom space, the traditional telephone space, you know, it started out with Theodore Bale came up with the universal service policy platform in part to promote the bell system but the idea was and the selling point to uh, decision makers and policymakers at the time was we're going to make telephone service universal everybody's going to have access to the telephone when alexander graham bell invented the phone and just barely beat out elijah gray but anyway that's another story uh you know he said there's going to be a telephone in every house and people just laughed and no that's not it's is a luxury right yeah. and it's not going to happen Theodore Bale and the Bell system took to the next level and and then other entrants and so on. And so, uh, you know, that became a universal service. Right. Uh, and then more recently, the, the, the question was, was broadband service, should that be included in uh, the universal service definition? I, I think most policymakers now agree. Now, as, as far as a fundamental right, I guess, it's who decides those fundamental rights. Uh, it seems really uh, important to, as we've said, for all the reasons you said, banking, travel, whatever, your education, uh, healthcare, you know, now we see doctors by, by Zoom. Yeah. Uh, so it's important. Uh, so is it a fundamental right? You know, again, that's hard to, to answer. It, it's certainly, important it, it's uh in uh, in you know then who defines that fundamental right and then whose responsibility it is to make that happen right so if it is a fundamental right then is that the government's responsibility is that industries government and industry mm-hmm. uh so i mean i wouldn't be shocked but we have so many other issues um and then what complicates your question a little bit i think about uh what sir tim berners lee uh, he was one of the founders of the World Wide Web, and he talked about some of the the things that are facing the Internet today. We, we, we've seen that in terms of all the malicious activity, uh, you know, the threats, the clickbait ads, the divisions between people, the lack of privacy, uh, uh, threats, and, and, and so on. So that dysfunction kind of complicates your, 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 your question as well. Uh, wouldn't be opposed to it, but I wouldn't be opposed to a lot of other fundamental rights <laughs> as well. So, well, that, that's uh, that's an incredibly int- I, great great answer, um, and it's been great having you on the show. I mean, it's super interesting topic and uh, a super interesting guest. So, thank you so much for being here, Professor Cosgrove. Well, thank you. One final comment: hook uh-huh. and horns. <laughs> <laughs> Got to throw up a gigam in response. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and also, and also before, before we sign off, since this is my last episode, thank you all for watching. Thank you for you know, those who, who moved to YouTube, subscribed. Uh, it's been a great season, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what uh, Matt and Brock are going to you know, do with this show, what they're going to take over. And for any of our listeners in New Hampshire, that was a joke. 
I used to go to New Hampshire a lot and I just never had great internet. So that's, <laughs> so that's it. Thank you again for being on the show, Professor Cosgrove and uh, Kevin Donovan signing off. Thanks for listening. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast app and follow the Houston Law Review on social media or check us out on HoustonLawReview.org. Till next time.